0: him that overcometh will i make a pillar in the temple of my god and he shall go no more out and i will write upon him the name of my god and the name of the city of my god which is new jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my god and i will write upon him my new name he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches
1: Welcome, everyone. You are listening to a word fitly spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple to continue the discussion on Revelation. Gentlemen, how are you? Things are great. We had uh, winter finally
0: came for about a week here, so we're in. I don't know if they call it a polar vortex or what they're what it's called these days, but as of this recording, we are we have about six inches of snow on the ground, and uh, I've been shoveling driveways all day today. So I'm I'm in the best of moods. (laughs) Zolan and yourself?
2: I'm also in a good mood. Our weather isn't nearly as intense. I mean, it's been kind of cold lately, but it's as of this recording, you know, actually above zero, which is says something, but we don't have a whole lot of snow on the ground. So no, otherwise, all things considered, things are, are going well.
1: Well, it is quite snowy here. We've got about a foot on the ground. Uh, that's actually why I'm able to join you for this revelation episode. As our listeners know, I've not been heretofore on the revelation episodes because I've been in the hollow earth trying to get access to the caves. Well, now <laughs> it's snowed in. It's frozen. I'm going to have to wait until spring to uncover the daros and, uh, you know, destroy their plots <laughs> once and for all. But we'll get down there. You know, I, we got a whole taxonomy to do of what we find. It's um, a yeah. lot, of, lot of good research going on. And we're just—I'm just lucky that you guys have been able to to do the these episodes thus far, and that Zelwyn was willing to come out of his winter hibernation in order to do them. I'm convinced,
0: Willie, that there is a pathway, and this this is a apropos for Zelwyn too. I'm convinced that there is a way to get from Mammoth Caves, which is near me, up to at least to Wind Cave, and if I can get that far, I'm sure there's some way to get also to North Dakota, Zelwyn. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure you can get underground
2: somehow. I'm yeah. not sure where you would come out though. That that would be the 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 trick to
1: figure out. Or what would well, a man find, you know? That's uh that's the key. Also,
0: it's also there is a great mystery here because I'm I'm pretty sure that underground travel even though the earth seems anyways to be flat, right? And it wouldn't make sense that going through the hollow earth would be faster. I'm almost positive that it is. <laughs> I can't explain that yet,
1: so certainly, and it has something to do with the Earth being the center of the universe, and so we're we're still digging, still trying to understand these great mysteries. We will unlock them, and we will let you know right here it won 't even be behind the paywall once we figure it all out
2: no it, yeah we we offer all of our findings free for the posterity of of all humankind, so right,
1: unlike uh let's say a modern vaccine, we don't copyright that sort of thing, so we don't we don't do it for the shekels. <laughs> we do it for you, Word Fitly Nation. Well, all right, guys. Um, speaking of, as we're going on into Revelation, we're going to continue uh, from where you all left off, which was the letters to the churches. You got three out of the way, as I understand it, or four? You got four. Four. Yep. Yeah. And so we're going to start with Sardis today. But before we do, David, why don't you bring us up to speed a little bit? Yeah, we so in
0: our previous episode, and our listeners can go back if they want to and uh, hear those first four churches, we discussed a little bit, Zelwyn and I did, some of the different theories about uh, how would we put this, Zellin, How how you want to read those letters if they are supposed to correspond to certain ages of the church, like each letter matches a certain period of church history where there would have been a certain common temptation and a certain pitfall to avoid, or if you want to just take them more, I guess, broadly speaking, as Catholic letters, almost like epistles that are universal in their, you know, they have a particular addressee, but they have a more universal application. And uh, if I remember right, and it was uh, Luther anyways, advocated at one point. At least offhandedly, or something, as he was wont to do, that he kind of subscribed to this each letter represents a certain age in the church, and uh, I was kind of more more for the the each letter should be taken as as more universal,
2: yeah, I mean that we did talk about that at least for a little bit there it is actually more common than just Luther too, I mean this idea of the letters corresponding to certain times or whatever it is actually more common than we might like to admit but i think if we're really going to see the 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 application out of all of them it is it is very helpful to see them as letters which not only speak to their time but also speak to our situation as well which is kind of the
0: the direction we went when we talked about them last time the, a couple other things, just kind of broadly speaking here about the letters, um, we we mentioned the common form. So each of the letters is addressing, in some ways, a different situation, but there's a common form to the letters, and I think it's worth just repeating it before we go into it. The form is Jesus speaks; he identifies himself with some title and some aspect of his person or his work his office as the christ and then he he typically and we'll see the, uh you know we'll see in the letter to the philadelphians this is not always the case but usually he starts with here's what you're doing well here's what i hold against you then there's usually a call to repent and then a threat that goes along with that repent or else and then the letter Typically closes with some kind of a promise for faithfulness and for. <laughs> I like how
1: you said threat instead of warning. <laughs> <laughs> ah, p- potato, potato, right? <laughs> um, quick question for you guys: um, These are all addressed, or you know, what do you want to say? Dictated to the angels of the particular churches. Right. What do you make of the of, of the angels here? Are they just messengers? Should it be would it be better translated as that, or is there something spiritual going on here too? I think the what we I
2: I don't remember what we talked about last time but I think we went with the messengers of the churches because it is written to particular situations you could you understand this even as the like say the, the pastors of the church you know the those who are leading the, the one who is leading this church in Philadelphia or Sardis or wherever wherever we are uh, because then, when you have, you know, the works that are being described, they're always described as earthly things. You know, the situation that's going on in that place. So, I, I guess, I would say that it is something that they that they are speaking to people, and that we're just translating it as angel. Do you want to fight me on that,
0: or what? <laughs> no, I just want to get weird with it as soon as we could um, <laughs> in the middle of it. So. Yeah. How, I mean, I've, I've always heard it, Willie, as the, you know, the messenger, the pastor, the bishop, however you want to put it there. What would, how would you explain it? If it, if the letter was written to an angel as in an angelic being, how would that work out? Well, that's why I asked you, right?
1: I mean, oh. <laughs> I mean and that's the thing though. Like there's, there's a reason why it's, why it's translated angel instead of messenger here. And it's either an English convention Right. But there is a lot of there's other stuff going on here in Revelation. You've got the seven spirits around the throne, for example, Uh, all of these unique uses of the word to that. And so is there some kind of heavenly being associated with each congregation? I don't know. Could be doubtful. Although we do all like to say every every liturgy, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So obviously angels are present within the churches. But I think the most natural thing here is to just say that they're messengers, the men charged to bring the word to to the churches. Sure. Uh, although there's got to be there's bound to be some esoteric meaning. I mean you, you know that that people have held to has held to guardian angels. I think honestly, one of the even though even though I take a, a rather early view of of Revelation you know, what how does church organization look in the year AD seventy, for example, but it could very easily be the bishops. Sure. And and that's probably more likely because you have a bishop over a certain diocese for lack of a better term, over certain cities who would then disseminate this to them. Right. So right. I th- I think bishops or prelates is probably probably sure. more likely than just individual pastors there. Some of these cities aren't that big though. No that's true but there's still a lot of work to be done and this is right. this is you know even if you if you take it as 96 or 70 the church has now had decades to grow. You know I I do think you're seeing the early organization of bishops because even in the book of acts you have local men being called out with the apostles then overseeing various things. So you already have the, the beginnings of this in in the New Testament. And you already have multiple pastors per city, even within the book of Acts and in the epistles, apparently. Sure. No, I didn't mean to debate on if they had bishops by then or not, but I mean, bishops in the hierarchical sense, we can do the the loof thing and go, well, bishops are just pastors and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, um, but
2: it's it's not very Presbyterian of you is what I'm really
1: trying. (laughs) That's right. Yes. It's odd for me to do that (laughs) because the only divine church government is Robert's rules of order. (laughs)
2: <laughs> which of course came much, much later. That's, that's okay though. You
1: know, <laughs> no, some noble Scotsman dug up the golden plates. Believe me, they are very ancient. <laughs> All right, guys, well, let's go on. Let's talk a little bit about the church in Sardis. What, what is, what message is the angel bringing to them?
0: Yeah. The message to, um, to Sardis, if you think back to what I was saying there about, you know, the form of these letters it starts off with uh, a commendation that there are some who walk in white robes, but the the general tenor of the letter is not good. So things are not going well in Sardis. Um, I'm just trying to find the exact language that's that's recorded here. It it's, it starts off by saying, you know, he he who speaks is the one who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. And this goes this goes all the way back to John's vision of the risen Jesus at the very beginning of the book here. Um, Jesus is holding in one hand the seven stars and he's walking among the seven lampstands. So the usually the identification that Jesus gives corresponds with something from that vision. And you can in the in the letter here, the call right away is to remain faithful, to be strengthened and to be ready to die. It says, for I have not found that your works are perfect. They're not they're incomplete before God. And you can see the I called it a threat before or the warning here. Jesus says, repent. And if you won't, I will come as a thief. And that uh, you won't recognize the time of his coming
1: there, right, that's stark words, um not very gospelly david <laughs> no the and we we talked about this last week
0: or not not last week, whenever we recorded last time, who knows it might have been months ago that Jesus speaks much more as a you know he speaks very sternly, which some people i don't know if you it depends where you get your ideas about. What Jesus sounds like you know if you're watching the chosen or if you're watching if you're watching anything to get your sense of what Jesus would have been like you're probably not it probably will seem out of character but when you read if you're reading the Bible it actually kind of just sounds the way Jesus spoke when he was walking around with the disciples you know he wasn't he wasn't a soft man by any means so these warnings and the just straight to the, you know, speaking bluntly, I think it's perfectly within his character.
1: Absolutely. Now the text is going to continue on to say that there are a few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is language that is bound to make people very uncomfortable. And yet here is a stern warning that some of you have been found unworthy and your name will be blotted out of the... Well, some will be found unworthy. Obviously, their names will be blotted out of the book of life. Some are found worthy and their names will never be blotted out. out. So what do you make of that, guys?
2: Well, I, one thing that I do want to point out here that I think is connected, something we shouldn't overlook throughout this whole section is that the ESV translates uh, reputation in verse one here. You have the reputation of being alive. I think it would actually be better to say you have the name of being alive because it is this, it is this name and this idea of the name which they think they have and the name which they actually have, which I think is at work here. The church in Sardis has a name, so to speak, of being alive. They are thought to be walking in white. They are thought to be righteous. They are thought to be, you know, generally, well, you know, following after God. But Jesus is saying, no, what actually has happened here is that you are, you are hypocrites. You are dead. You are not actually walking in a way worthy of me. Now, we're not told exactly why that's the case. It, it's, it just says your works are not complete. They're lacking something. But... Then you see the contrast in verse four. You have a few names who have not done this. You know, you have this name, which you're trying to hold for yourself. And these are people who have the only name that actually matters. And that's the name that will not be blotted out of the book of life. And he will confess that name before my father and before his angels. So, I mean, it's this this language of name, I think, is something that we shouldn't overlook here. Right.
0: Oh yeah and i you can the yeah the greek word is name so you're right Zelwyn and you <laughs> but you can see you can see of course the the connection between name and reputation and then Jesus giving the name that really you know that actually matters that actually counts and and i agree with you there is no you know we're not told exactly what what did they have the reputation for you know was were they you know reputed as being Particularly confessional or particularly missional, you know those are mm-hmm. anachronistic terms, but they had some reputation, right, and it says of being alive, so they were they were thought to be, and they probably earned that reputation at an earlier point in the congregation's life that there really was a time where things were going well in Sardis. But then here's where you get that that picture of incomplete. It's like you start the race, but you don't finish it or you've to to connect it with the other the other language that's used here is you've you've put on the clothing and now it's become it's become soiled. So it's not clean. You're not walking cleanly anymore or in righteousness, which is what the clothing usually is connected to.
2: Well, I mean, this would be an allusion to Zechariah three. Right. With Joshua, the high priest uh, standing in soiled clothes and being and then God saying, you know, I'm going to take them from him and put him in clean clothes. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this idea of, yeah, that we are standing soiled in some sense because of sin. In the case of Sardis, I think it's because of their hypocrisy and because, you know, they have this name, this reputation of being much better than they are. And that is what has led to them being soiled. And so, yeah, the the warning then, or the threat, as, as as we like to say here, is that you know you need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to turn away from it and actually become clothed in real white garments, not ones that are soiled.
1: Well, and in typical biblical fashion, it's saying you can do this. You need to turn away. Right. It's it's not softened, and that's why it's not palatable to a lot of modern and we'll speak frankly here lutheran ears they don't they they, they don't have teeth anymore they've only gums left and so they can't chew the meat when it comes at them the danger what is the danger here if you don't turn away you will be blotted out of the book of life right you will lose that name you won't have the new name of god put on you as we're going to see later in the book things like that and so how do you how do you avoid being blotted out you turn from evil you turn from hypocrisy you turn from sin and turn into Christ. And uh, this is language that, and when we've talked about this between episodes and stuff. This is language that because we are so concerned with sounding like something else or another group say we might not like, we have totally jettisoned clear biblical language regarding this kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's the, going to uh, become more clear when we get to Laodicea. Yeah. <laughs> the, if I can, that here's a here's a good... Uh, Just
0: I know we're right at the break here, but uh, we got all the time in the world. All right. So I was talking with a a young man uh, in my congregation and he was he was sort of asking about, well, if if we really are, you know, unable to save ourselves, why does it always sound like in the Bible? Jesus tells people, you know, come follow me, you know, as if you're going to do something. And the the wonderful thing is, and this goes, I, I love this quote in the Book of Concord. It's from St. Augustine. He makes the unwilling willing and dwells in them. So the, the language is very much you've got to do something. And sometimes that comes off as, well, it's not passive language and isn't faith passive and purely passive. Of course, I'm not going to deny that we are justified by faith and that our righteousness comes to us from the outside, but you've got to recognize that when the, when scripture speaks and when Christ speaks his word, you know, if you want, I don't know if this is even helpful to do Willie, you can maybe push back on me a little bit on this if you want, but of course it's the word that causes regeneration and it's the word that causes repentance, but that when it causes that repentance and regeneration, it actually affects a person's will and it affects a person's mind. So the the Christians in Sardis and the Christians who hear this now hear these words and are actually brought to repentance, which then involves a real change of life.
1: Yeah, an actual uh, doing of something. And it's their actual its doing it. It's God working in them, but it's never presented in Scripture as them being robots or anything like that. We we're, we're, we always run the danger of sounding like what we think Calvinists sound like, because, because that's the straw man, right? Well, it, it turns people into robots. Well, I, I suppose that's true, but we're just as guilty of doing that too, so we can appease you know the the hip antinomian crowd or whoever, so that we can you know one day ourselves get invited into some back room clouded with cigar smoke and uh, be be ushered into the into the inter sanctum of antinomian masonry or whatever it is that we whatever cool kids club we want to be a part of but no you absolutely hit the nail on the head david and with that we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this as for god his way is perfect The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and David Apple, talking the Book of Revelation. It's been a fun discussion thus far. We got into another letter to the church. We talked about Sardis and the warnings there, the threats <laughs> that um Zellman and David like to say. Right. And so now we're moving on to the church in Philadelphia. Ancient Philadelphia, not the once great American city. <laughs>
2: one who could only hope, but yes, Right. Okay. So how do we want to, how do we want to tackle it then? Where do we, where do we want to go with it?
0: Well, maybe just, I think if we've, if we follow the, the outline pattern, I'm sure there's going to be some things we want to talk about here, but um, of all the, of all the cities, I think Philadelphia, and I, I may be, there may be one other one that's generally positive, but Philadelphia gets the best report here, I think. Um, there's almost nothing held against the Philadelphians. So the commendation is that they've kept Christ's word. They have not denied his name. And then that they have been patiently enduring. And that, that I know we've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The This goes into the whole book of Revelation. There is this call for endurance. There's this call for perseverance. And um, there's the promise that Christ will be victorious um, through our perseverance.
1: Right. Well, and, and the call to to endure, the call to persevere, is present, you know, all throughout the Book of Revelation. Right. And and really, this is what seems to be happening to the churches in the book that are falling away: is that they are giving in to every kind of temptation and not enduring. Whether it's following after their own bellies, or whether it's them in the face of persecution giving into the world, which is really what Revelation is written about to not -hmm. not give in to the demands of the world in the face of vicious threats. Now, this message uh, should strengthen us in the times that we live in, where we face very mild things, but we're accused of all manner of evil for the sake of safety concerns, that kind of thing. Um, The church is demonized in the media, for example, for having church, for not double, triple, and quadruple masking, for not microchipping everyone that comes in, you know, all sorts of <laughs> things that are going to come our way. The church has been vilified for that. And many churches uh, are still closed uh, due to government restrictions or even worse, they are just not opening when they could finally do it. If we can't endure, if we cannot endure voluntary measures without succumbing, without closing our doors, I don't have all that much hope for when the bad times really hit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Although I do, I know you want to get to the application of this letter, Willie, and we'll get there. But I do want to point out one thing about the the situation in Philadelphia, which I think is very, very interesting for us, is that Philadelphia is in a position of being generally very, very weak. They are under an intense persecution already. And it's a persecution coming from uh, like a strong kind of social pressure, because I mean, I mean. listen to the words that Jesus says here. He says, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you.
1: I just want to point out here, Zelwyn, that you're like, well, we're three minutes in. Let's not get to the application. When in between <laughs> planning for this episode, I said, I want to talk about the synagogue of Satan. And you're like, well, we're not just going to jump right into it.
2: <laughs> we're, I'm not getting the synagogue of Satan just yet. I'm still laying out the situations. But just hold on.
1: Settle down, Zelwyn. Just It's okay. I'm just, no. I'm just messing with you.
2: I know. I know. It'll all be good. <laughs> but the, the point here is that they are dealing with a situation where they have what appears to be in this case, a synagogue that is in a, a very strong social position and is using that position as a way of persecuting this church. So they're always pushing back against them. they're always trying to to basically say like you need to give in to what we're doing, you need to you know give up, give up, give up, give up." That's really kind of the, the main message that the main situation that's going on in Philadelphia. And so Jesus is coming to them, and he's saying, "You know, I know that you've been dealing with this, I know you were in such a weak position, but yet I have come to you and 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 you need to stand firm, even with what little you have, and I will give you strength i will you know I will encourage you, I will give you the ability to endure because I mean this is where you get a lot of the language right the the one who has the key of David who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. I've set you before I've set before you an open door." which no one's able to shut. No one's going to close you out of the kingdom kind of a thing. You know, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of, of my God. You're not going to go out of it again. And then, you know, I'm going to put my name on you. So, I mean, it really is a message. I mean, if you want to use this language, a very pure gospel to the church in Philadelphia. You know, you have suffered much for the sake of the kingdom, but I am going to, you're not going to suffer much more right. because for, for my sake.
1: And great suffering, and we see this in we see this in the, the words of Jesus um in his own sermons, but with great suffering, godly suffering produces or earns great reward. God does see this. And ultimately, what is the prize that the Philadelphians receive but that name? Right? Right. No matter what the cost is, it is always better to remain faithful, because God will see and will provide recompense. David, you want to add to that? No, I think uh, just in
0: listening to you guys go go on a little bit there, the question about like what kind of suffering they're facing is is maybe you might be able to, I don't know, determine something of it based on what Jesus says about, you know, the promise. So it's, it's um, you're going to be part of the temple. You're going to be a pillar in the true temple. You're going to have the real name of God. And if you look at what he says about what he's going to do to those who are persecuting them, you might be able to determine something of the suffering that they're enduring. So he says, I will make those um, who are in the synagogue of Satan um, bow down to you and acknowledge that I have loved you. So it may have been, at least in part, that you've got already this um, very intense debate between the Jewish component of Philadelphia and the Christians about who really are the true people of God here, who, who belongs to the real temple, who, who has God set his love on Um, those who acknowledge the son or those who deny the son. I think that might be the, the theological pressure, But like you guys are hinting at, there's, of course, social pressure that that's part of this. And you can see that Christian and Jewish, well, the the battle, the struggle really comes out in the book of Acts very clearly of how the Jews try to malign St. Paul, how they try to make his whole mission suspect by accusing him of all sorts of things. They never just resort to a purely theological thing. There's always... The social part, too.
1: Well, that's all they have to appeal to at this point. You know, uh, you're not part of the tribe by acting this way. So if you want to be a part of it, you've got to come back in a little bit hard for for Jews to enter into that Gentile world in a way. So they want to socially ostracize them. You know, uh, Zellin's been reading a lot of uh, dispensational stuff uh, <laughs> in preparation for some future episodes, and I'm sure that you've 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 seen a great twisting of this text many times.
2: Sure, yeah, and 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 we do need to talk about you know who who do we mean by Jews, and you know what's the relationship between Jews and uh, the church here. But I I do think it's worth saying before <laughs> we do that.
1: I just I do think it's worth. Uh, you know, pushing this off as far as we can before the FCC shuts it down.
2: <laughs> well, we have to keep it going before we are, you know, officially canceled. So uh, I just, I mean, they're it it is using their position, but I think it's also, they're probably in a position of much greater strength. And so they're, what's probably happening in this case is that Christians are, you know, apostatizing and coming back to the synagogue, mm-hmm. you know, that they're being forced to defect and come back to this because, you know, We're obviously the ones that God loves because look at the position that we're in. Look at how much wealth we have. Look at how favored we are. So, we must, so you over here in your weak little church who are, you know, so persecuted and so little, you know, obviously you can't be the ones whom God loves.
1: Right. And God's going to make it very clear that I will make them, the synagogue of Satan, bow down at your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Right. So, saying that he doesn't love them.
2: There. (laughs) Now we stepped in it, Willie. So go for
1: it. (laughs) Well, no, but I mean, this is like, you know, there there is the general love that God has for all men, but there are also things that the Bible says that the Lord hates, and that the Lord does favor a certain people, but plot twist, it is the church that is the bride of Christ, that, that Christ loves. It is the church that is true Israel. And much like what we see today in modern dispensationalist circles. They have this idea that there's the church and that there's some kind of ethnic Israel and that ethnic Israel is prized above the church of Christ. And biblically, that's indefensible. It's dangerous. Uh, check out the end of the Schofield episode if you want to hear more about that or wait for our future dispensationalism episodes. We'll talk about that more. This has become something that we cannot talk about or are told not to talk about because synagogue, synagogue of Satan is, is a very controversial uh, term for some people. But there's no way to get this to understand that it's a group of unbelieving Jews who oppose Jesus. Okay? So, right. yes, uh, John, uh, who is receiving this revelation, is is Jewish. Okay? And the early Christians are Jews, and yet what you have here are what we'll call ethnic Jews or cultural Jews, for lack of a better reason, who have rejected Christ, and thus, if if they reject Christ, they are not true Jews. They are not true Israelites, because to be a true Israelite is to be a part of Israel and Israel, and namely the Israel of God. So a lot of things get mixed up here, though, because people think of the modern nation of Israel, for example, or the, or the quote-unquote Jewish people of today, or the Judaism of today, which is even further removed from the truth of scriptures than was the Judaism back then. I mean, any yeah. Juda- i mean, any anything that's called Judaism that rejects Jesus, obviously, a false religion. But Rabbinic Judaism develops m- long after Revelation is written, which which gets even more bizarre and even more anti-Christian, if you can believe it, all the way up to modern forms of Judaism that don't even believe in God. And so, certain theologians are going to look at that and go, "See, this is the, the clearly not the synagogue of Satan. It has nothing to do with that. Yet it does. It is." These are Jews who identify as Jews, however you want to define that, and reject Jesus Christ. They are the synagogue of Satan. But again, I just, this has become something that we can't talk about because it's seen as offensive somehow. It's become a loaded term. But it is a term yeah. used in the Bible, and it refers to people of the Jewish groups who have rejected Jesus. So it says that they are not on God's side, but because they reject Christ but those who are on god's side are part of the true israel the israel of god the church of christ
0: yeah well i think this this is connected in with the rest of the book of revelation where you don't you don't have a any neutral ground and i think that's what makes it hard for you know hard for the modern ear to to hear that the jews would be called the synagogue of satan But you see this later in the book, and we'll come to this, you know, probably in about three years time when (laughs) when the dragon, uh, you know, calls the beast up out of the ocean. And then you have the second beast that comes up out of the land. Those things are all in league with Satan. And so you never have there is no such thing as kind of a middle ground. So you can't say, well, on the, you know, it's, there's no spectrum, right? It's not like on the right side, you've got the Christians, and on the far left side, you've got the Luciferians, and in the middle, you've got some other group. It's just, you're either with Christ, or yeah. you're him you're it, it's,
1: it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. Exactly. Well, I,
0: I do think it's interesting that in verse
2: 9 here, where it says, the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, <laughs> I think I think the implication there is that the true Jews, if you want to use that language, the true Jews are the ones being persecuted. In other words, the church.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean because this is how we pr- prove that they are Jews and not Jews. It's clearly talking about Jews because he says they're pretending to be Jews or they say they're Jews. But just like Paul is going to point out that it's um not Abraham's seeds but Abraham's seed you know, uh, it, that's how his children are, are numbered, as many as the stars, uh, that it's not just being a part of this of this group that makes one a Jew. Right. A child of Abraham, I mean.
2: Right, 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 right. But I mean, even even if we're not dealing with um, struggling with like Jewish issues, I know, but it is something that is a live issue, even <laughs> sure. in our day. Right. Sure. I, I mean, the, how do we relate to Judaism and that sort of thing, especially when it becomes we, we, so controversial? We don't. Right, right. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm not denying that. I'm just trying to set up the, the point here. <laughs> but but I mean, when even when we're dealing with the question of, you know, what do we do in our situations where maybe we're dealing with groups who, you know, lord themselves over us and try to continuously push us down, you know, this can be applied to more than just a Jewish question.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, we don't, we definitely don't want to tackle, you know, just jewish questions on this podcast. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it it can be yeah, if you wanted to to apply it uh, more broadly, you can, but it really was focusing kind of on the the loaded term there. But anyone who finds themselves rejecting Christ finds themselves in the same boat. I think that though where the synagogue of Satan finds itself in a, in a more dangerous position is because they do have the scriptures. At least at this point, they've got the Old Testament, should be sufficient enough and yet they would still reject Christians because of that. Right. And so excuse me in spite of that. I th-
0: I think there's something else to mention here in connection with what Jesus says about how he's he's going to vindicate the the Philadelphians by you know dethroning or he's going to make the he's going to humiliate the synagogue of Satan and certainly there that will happen in full on the last day. But that vindication also happens in in real time, right, and mm. in his and in history, so this gets into some question that that we've talked about before on here of whether the book is written pre <laughs> um, temple destruction or post temple destruction.
1: I knew you um, were going to throw this one at me when I came on.
0: Well, you you've been <laughs> in the earth and now you're here <laughs> with us, but that would be a very obvious way in which the the Judaism of that time is seen to be not the true Judaism, right? If your temple is thrown under, if your altar is destroyed, if your priesthood no longer functions, then you've got a pretty clear indication that you don't well, have God's favor.
1: Well, well, hold on. I mean, it can, it can cut both ways because... So the argument, folks, is... Is is Revelation written before 70 AD while the temple is still standing, or is it written after 70 AD when the temple has been destroyed? So, David, what you're saying is if the temple's destroyed, it's evidence that they really have nothing to boast in that God's judgment's already been made. And, Correct. and now it is God's judgment. 100% agreed there. However, if the temple is still standing, you could also read that into this text, too, to say that, well, they say they're Jews. Because here they have the temple, they have this the, the sacrifices, they have the priesthood, and now they're boasting in this, but I will make them come and bow down. I will make them come bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So the judgment could still be yet to come in seventy AD.
0: Well, that's what place. I'm saying. Yeah, to,
1: yeah. To be, yeah.
2: To be fair though, this could have been a problem just in Philadelphia.
1: Right, but no, but we're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that no, when I've got news for you. Uh, the problem, this this problem they're having between the Jews and the Christians, kind of a a problem everywhere there are Jews and Christians. I know, so, I know. I just, <laughs> but, I'm just
2: trying to talk about what the text is talking
1: about. That's all. Right, but but that's what we're trying to do too. Here is how much do we want to read the temple in when you look at when you look at it broadly, because we're looking at it with a really narrow lens here, narrow focus. You know, how much does that temple still standing affect, or not standing affect, the way we read it? Right. Because that is a big overarching theme, which would certainly inform us. Either way, either way, we know that there are people who are haughtily claiming to be the people of God, to be the Jews, and, and lording it over those who have come to believe in Christ and those who cling to Christ. The Philadelphians have this particular promise uh, attached to their endurance. Is there anything we can take away from this about endurance, Zullen? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, that,
2: that endurance, you know, is something that is given to us from, from the Lord. It's, you know, that the Lord will strengthen us in the midst of our trials, but also to, even if we have, like it says, but little power, you know, hold on to what little you have, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. even, I mean, even, even if you don't have much, hold on to it because that way, no one will, will take your crown. No one is going to take it away from you. You cannot be taken away from the Lord. So, yeah, I mean, we don't want to, to you know, fret and worry and say, oh, well, we don't have much. We don't have much. How are we ever going to stand? Just hold on to that. <laughs> and God's yeah. going to take care of you anyway.
0: And the, the strength that they have is that he who holds the key of David in his hand has opened the door and the, you know, the synagogue of Satan cannot close what he opens or open what he shuts. And that is, I mean, isn't that often what we say about suffering in when your strength is shown to be of no help, then you're forced to say, but the Lord's strength, you know, made me strong. And that's, you know, that's what you learn through suffering and that's where perseverance um, kicks in. Well, and, and just as one final thought too, in verse 12, where he says,
2: you know, I'm going to make him a pillar and I'm going to write on him the name of my God, which of course we can maybe understand as the name of the father the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which we can break it down but i think is actually a reference to the spirit and then my own new name the name of the son as well so you have the the trinitarian name being written upon us even in the midst of our struggling and and strengthening us and making us a pillar in the temple of god i think that's it's just a beautiful text to to work with
1: yeah great stuff we've got to take it our next break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this The word of the Lord says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Appled talking about letters to the church in Revelation. So we've gone through Philadelphia, had a nice, lively discussion there with the Goyim. And now we're going on to this last letter, this last church. David, tell us a bit about it.
0: Yes, Laodicea is the last one here. And the the way Jesus, I don't know if you want to, this is maybe overly technical, but his self-introduction is... He calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And then there is, it's kind of the flip side of Philadelphia. So in Philadelphia, there was nothing held against the Philadelphians. But in Laodicea, there's no no commendation. It just goes straight into, I know your works, and this is what I hold against you, that you are neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, and so I will vomit you forth. And then comes the the statement, you know, repent and return to me. Does it say repent? It might not even say repent. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire so that you may become rich and white clothing that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not appear and that you would anoint your eyes so that you might see.
1: Next verse he Uh, says, repent. Yeah, he says.
0: I rebuke (laughs) and chasten you, so be zealous and repent. And then the final thing, you know, this promise that's held out is probably all of our listeners have this painting above their, somewhere in their house, or they should, if they don't, of Jesus knocking on the door. And that comes from uh, Revelation 3 here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever opens to me, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. It's a great letter. It really is. And then I guess we just for the sake of completion, the, the final promise is, and he will sit on me, he will sit with me on the throne of my father. <laughs> we're gonna sit
1: on his lap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing? Well <laughs> Well, we treat him like Santa Claus sometimes anyway. Yeah, so so Jesus is at the door of the church knocking. Yes. And And he is waiting for someone to open up now, this is where you get a lot of evangelism illustrations that people don't like, but there is a little bit of truth to it he's He's saying, "I'm knocking on the door of the church, though, will I find anyone inside who will welcome me
2: right yeah it's 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 wanting access to a church that has closed itself against it has closed
1: him. itself against him. yeah, is anybody in this church who hears me knocking? If there yeah. is, I will come in and eat with him, and he will dine with me." But it's kind of a rhetorical thing. Ain't nobody answering that door and loud to see ya. Have you guys ever seen that painting? You know the painting
0: I'm talking about, right? Where Jesus yeah, is of working. Course. I'm pretty sure have,
1: I can't open a closet in my church without finding one.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen it above the altar? I feel I like have. Or, I've I've seen it yeah. above the altar, yeah. I thought I had seen it there before. I don't know where what church it was in, but um Yeah, I've so.
1: seen it I've seen it at probably more than one. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how
0: widespread that is.
1: Well, that painting is is everywhere. We should just do a we should do an episode just on paintings you see in every church, like the Solomon Head of Christ, that sort of thing. I yeah, don't know. Right. We'd have to get old guy <laughs> praying in Minnesota too. We'd have to get that one.
0: But uh, yeah, you
1: see the Jesus knocking one lots and lots of places. Oftentimes, if it's not hanging above the altar, it's in the reredos or something. It's in the it's in the uh, it's on the walls or in the back of the church. I've seen big versions painted on walls before. Yeah. So yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's break down the letter, though, you know, kind of taking it bit by bit like we have been doing. Sure. So you have the that the works of the Laodiceans are neither cold nor hot. OK. And he says, you know, it would be better if you were one or the other. But because you're something in the middle, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So, you know, what what is it? <laughs> what is it, David, that has. That has made them eat neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. Well, well,
1: I mean, well, hold on. we got to point out here that God is not pleased with centrists. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Centrism
0: blown out. I love it. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Get it out of here. <laughs> I, had a, um,
0: I had a guy in Bible class ask me recently if... If Jesus is harder, this was, it was an interesting question, how he phrased it. He said, is it, is Jesus harder on Christians than he is on non-Christians? And I said, well, I don't think it's going to be a good thing in the end to be a non-Christian, but you do have things like to whom much is given. Wait, is that Spider-Man? To whom much is given, much is, ex- is expected. <laughs> um, how about this? Whoever is faithful with a little will be also be faithful in much. I mean, right. the more. The more that you have been given, this is one of my my common things when I talk about the the epistle, Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, is that the the surpassing greatness of the revelation of Christ also means that to reject it or to treat it lightly is to reject something of such great value that it really is worse for a person to have once tasted and then rejected what he tasted than to have never tasted it at all. And so what's happening in Laodicea is they received these things. And then at some point, they've come to treat it as of no, no great importance. So whether they're self satisfied, or they're just content with what they've received, I think that's, that's got to be tied in with lukewarmness is you're, you're not, eager for the things of God anymore. They're just you're treating what's holy as if it's common.
2: Well, I mean, but we don't we don't want to make it sound like they've become cold though. I mean, yeah, they've cooled, but they haven't become totally cold because if they were totally sure. cold, that would be one thing. You can deal with that, right? You know, you can deal with somebody who's become completely cold to the gospel. And you can deal with somebody who's been, who's completely on fire for the gospel. But when we just have this complete middling warm lukewarm and i don't really care one way or the other i mean it really is just utter i think utter and complete indifference yeah apathy sure you know what i mean that they, they're not they're not denying christ by any stretch of the imagination
0: but they don't really care about him either if that makes sense yeah, I think so. The think look at the look at the promise that's given to him or the counsel it Jesus says, I counsel you to come and buy from me, buy gold from me, get clothing from me, get solved for your eyes from me. It seems like and maybe this is reading something into it, but the love of riches, right? The care of the care for wealth, as Jesus will talk about in um, say the parable of the sower, that has a a cooling effect on people. And so the the choking out of the cares of the world and the pleasures of the world, I think should be drawn in here as these are all, these are the things that make a person lukewarm, is when you surround yourself with all kinds of other stuff, and you pour your energy and your what your love into these other things. That's what makes, that's what leads to to lukewarmness
1: well it's worth pointing out that laodicea is um a prosperous place i mean at least in a couple centuries bc it started to grow very rich also has a large jewish population too which kind of brings us back to some of the discussion from the other time but it seems that they have grown rich prospered and they need nothing this is like just like you were saying jesus speaks about this in parables So, and, and there's always that temptation to just put grains in store to put grain in your storehouses just for the sake of looking at it, Mm -hmm. the rich fool, as it were. And again, uh, there, there's a lesson here that, that prosperity often leads to apathy. And this is where, this is why Lent is important. I have Lent on the brain for some reason, guys. (laughs) This is where fasting and discipline is important. Because it's almost like being fat and full all of the time uh, leads to the eyes scaling over. So you can't see clearly or, or it leads to the ears being stopped up as it were. And so you become like this, you become lazy physically and spiritually. I do believe the two are connected so much so that you, you don't even realize what a state you are in. You sit back and say, I'm rich. I'm prospered. I'm first article gifts. I'm UO Jade. I'm good. And then, you don't realize in what a, a wretched, pitiable, poor state you're in. So, you know, this kind of goes back to the discussion about who were these letters written to? Well, even if they're only meant to be carried to these specific churches, my goodness, especially Laodicea, is there not something that we can see in our own day here?
2: Well, and especially with the uh, in verse 19, where he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, which should make David immediately happy, you know, because that's that's Hebrew's language. This idea that Laodicea is also in their apathy, in their spiritual fatness, if you want to use that language, I like that imagery. I think it really drives home the point. Their spiritual flabbiness, they have become very impatient with God doing anything against them. You know, they've become very impatient of discipline and they see any kind of suffering as a kind of, you know, God must hate me. But he says, no those whom i love are the ones whom i reprove and i discipline you need to you know yeah. stop being so flabby spiritually and to actually
0: do these things that got, that i want you to do yeah the and i mean you you can see this in in some ways the like the the response to natural disasters or even a bad crop a bad year mm. uh, on the farm the, all these things are meant to turn us to God, right? I gave you uh, cleanness of teeth, and yet you did not return to me," says the prophet somewhere, Amos. Yeah, <laughs> just for you. So. Okay. But the, but those things, when you no longer experience that, when you know you do have everything just fine it can seem like, well, what's the, you know, what, what's the point of turning back to God? I can provide just fine for myself. I can things, you know, I, I stopped going to church last March and, you know, all of a sudden the government was sending me money. <laughs> so <laughs> The I, nothing... church
1: was uh, streaming the service right into my head. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I didn't, you know, lightning didn't strike. The earth didn't open up and swallow me. So I don't know. It doesn't seem so bad. And that's, you can see that in, um, we all have little kids. You can see this with, with the way children respond to discipline too. Like when you threaten something, if you don't follow through, they, they learn pretty quickly. That's not a rule that I have to actually follow. And that's not a thing that I really need to be concerned about because dad doesn't, doesn't carry through. And I think in this is maybe getting into some of the hidden providence of God that we don't really fully understand, but the handing over in the language of Romans one to, to be handed over and not disciplined and not rebuked and not chastened is itself kind of a worse form of discipline than the actual discipline.
1: Well, we, we, we sometimes explicit implicitly, you know, we sometimes imply that contrition or feelings of guilt are somehow anti-Christian or bad. When in reality, if you're not at least feeling some measure of shame <laughs> for the sins you commit at times, that's not a good spiritual sign. And you can throw the pietist canard out there if you want, but this this is the fact. I mean, you see this in Scripture over and over and over. Rend your hearts. What does that mean? Does that mean buy CPH books and quote them? block quote them on Facebook. No, it's (laughs) rend your hearts. Hear the word of the Lord, be cut to the quick and repent. The Christian life is about discipline. We, you know, way, way years back now we did episodes where we talk about the importance of the liturgical year because it does discipline us. It gets us into a cycle of Christian living. That's very important. If we are using these great gifts of the church as merely window dressing. So, the church seasons for example are just what we do because we want to show that we're not calvinists you know that we believe in a church calendar or something like that then throw it out it's meant to to discipline us to remind us of that lent more than any other season we are called to or we are accustomed to denying ourselves in some way and and more and more it's like well i'm just going to give up chocolate for 40 days but now they have fake chocolate right or something Something some middle-aged person somewhere would would give up, anyway. But the point is, the point is, we we've grown. I I do think that at the very least, can we try the modern wet Western custom of fasting? If you can't handle shoving fish in your face once a week, you know we're in a bad spot here. Um, or can we do something even better than that? Most of our churches now, for example, we're going to have midweek services. Can we fast uh, an extra hour of time? Can we sacrifice an extra hour of time rather? throughout the season of Lent. Uh, these, there are great gifts within the church given to us that enable us uh, to discipline ourselves. We cultivate discipline, and then oftentimes God brings that chastening on us himself in the form of conviction of sins or even taking things away from us. Who knows in the providence of God how he works? Uh, men are sometimes permitted to fall into grievous sins so that they not become puffed up with pride, for example. The Lord is working in the hearts of those who believe in him. That's why the way of the Christian is not meant to be appealing to the world. There is a supernatural appeal to it, the community that Christians have, the joy that Christians have in the face of persecution and in the face of the evil that befalls them. But in the worldly sense, there really shouldn't be too much about us that makes people jealous. If if someone is only concerned about their belly and they're and their heavy and they're their just logy with all of these fatty foods and and, and drugs and alcohol they're they're going to drift on into that into that kind of mode anyway and so the Christian understands that even though in the worldly sense I may have nothing my treasures are in heaven and that this is a sign that God is working in through and on me
0: as you're talking there Willie I'm thinking about the things that are being kind of taken away from us right now without you know None of us said we want to lose respectability, but that is one of the outcomes of, you know, trying to maintain some semblance of church life during the coronavirus is you end up looking like a psycho. You know, your your church is still meeting for. <laughs> not just not just to worship but like you're trying to have Sunday school and you're trying to have right. congregational meals like you must be out of your mind and that the loss of respectability i think you know some people that's no problem for but i think f- i'm i'm going to venture a guess for the majority of our synod that the notion that we are respectable is a painful thing to be taken away and that's why it's so hard for our st- In our synod, anyways, in our circle, to maintain that,
1: yeah, we want to be seen as respectable and principled. That's why people are now, once again, when the chips are down, endorsing quietism again and those sorts of things instead of fully embracing a theonomic kingdom like we ought to be. But,
2: (laughs) but you're just just put it out there, (laughs) Willie. Don't don't sugarcoat it.
1: (laughs) But no, but you're absolutely right. There's this. Well, in the, you know, what what's the world going to see? They're they're going to see us as unsafe. It's like, well, that's fine. But what you're doing by remaining open, by still um, administering the sacraments, by still preaching the gospel, is saying that this is more important than whatever the world throws at us. That the world can take everything from us, including our lives, but they cannot take away Christ from us. Christ will not be robbed from us. We will not allow the devil to slip in and steal. And I do fear, brothers, that in capitulating to nearly every demand, We have set ourselves up for future capitulations and that we've opened the door to the sheep pen, as it were, because we're not even we haven't even got to the mark of the beast yet. But I hear all these people, whether you believe a mark is coming or not, I do not care. But hypothetically, let's say one is if the mark of the beast is coming, people go, well, I would never take it. I would never take the mark of the beast. Oh, really? Because I've seen you do literally everything the government told you just because you couldn't get to Walmart without it.
0: Yeah, what if they tell you you have to? <laughs> what if they tell you you have to?
1: Are you going to go, "Well, it, well, Roman, Rome, yeah. you guys should read Romans 13." <laughs> yeah, that's what they're going to say to us when the time comes. You know, because well, we're going to get just as much pressure when this stuff comes from institutional church types than we than we will from from the government. You're going to hear it from from pastors who are going to really want you to see what they're posting on Facebook and Twitter and all this. And they're going to be the ones going more Romans 13 and, and all of these other justifications for why you should be swabbed and chipped in the near future. Yeah. Well, but I digress.
2: Well, that's not really a digression though. Com- sure. Compare
1: that, compare
0: that with the, uh, you know, if Jesus says that he's going to spit you out of his mouth, I mean, in some ways that's a strange image, right? That he is, I mean, the idea of being a vomit is obviously the, the, central <laughs> image there so maybe maybe i'm pushing it too far but um you would much rather be eaten and digested there instead of being thrown up
1: well you're not uh, found palatable
0: yeah right jesus right, right.
1: jesus jesus has tasted what you're cooking and he doesn't like it
0: it's unpleasant
1: <laughs> yeah to the mouth yeah yeah in taste and texture you are bad one but one thing that i
2: maybe on a way of closing it now since we are coming to the end of the episode one thing there's a kind of wordplay going on here that I think is really really instructive. The word in Greek for the hot sounds very similar to the word for zealous, to be zealous. So in other words, you know, you are not hot, in other words, you're just kind of this lukewarm, but Jesus wants you to become hot, to, you know, actually be on fire for God, to actually repent in this way, to do what you're supposed to do and not be this middling, unpalatable you know, worthy only of being vomited out of his mouth kind of thing, but to actually be something delectable, you know, that is hot in the mouth that is enjoyable. So actually turn to him and repent.
1: Well, all right, guys, uh, that was a fun discussion. If we're not deplatformed, I hope to have you back very soon. (laughs) David, any final words
0: for us? I think the the connection here with the rest of the book, and you mentioned it, I think, in the previous segment, Willie, that the call to perseverance, I know I said this at the end of the, the previous episode, but I think there's something incredibly inspiring about how Jesus stands above the church and calls and, and in front of the church and is continually calling them to keep going, come with me, let's go, let's go. I, I just think it's, maybe it's because of our times, but I think that that message needs to be heard and
1: amplified as much as we can. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. God love you and God bless.
0: Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches.